This is Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Let's get into it. All right, guys, today we've got a special guest on the podcast. His name is Benjamin Nolo, not to be confused with Nalot, even though that's how his name is spelled, but he is a French-American film producer, director, and writer. He's known for his feature films like Nefarious, Merchant of Souls, Liberated, The Next Sexual Sexual Revolution, and Raised on Porn, and he has been nominated for Best Director at multiple film festivals. So, guys, his films and his videos have received more than 40 million views worldwide. So this guy has done a lot, and he's got the track record to prove it, and he's been screened, uh, he's done screenings for legislators at the highest levels of government here in the U.S., but also in the U.K., in Canada, Australia. And he also directed a new three-part series, which we're literally, in. if you're listening to this on time, we're in the middle of its release, these three parts called Beyond Fantasy, which exposes the, the dark, super dark underbelly of the pornography industry. Okay. So what he talks about in this three-part documentary, and we talk about it here in the show, and obviously you can check it out in the show notes, is these different types of pornography. So where did hardcore pornography come from? Who are the people that are purveying that type of pornography, but also underage pornography, where 18 and 19-year-old girls who look like they're 12 or 13 are being depicted in these horrifically uh, terrible hardcore films. Um, And in this interview, guys, this is an interview where if you've struggled with porn or if you're currently struggling with porn, you might automatically walk into this or be like, I'm going to skip this one. This is going to kind of bring up some bad, bad emotions and maybe some shame and different things like that. And he and I even talk about that in this interview, the different kinds of shame and how this goes. But my encouragement to everybody is this is a dark one. Like this is a heavy one today. It's not skip this. Do not skip this. Like literally lean into this content. If not for your own sake, for the sake of your children to the sake of the young people that you might be mentoring that might struggle in this area because this world of pornography, it's not your grandpa's world of pornography where you might watch one smut film in your entire life or whenever you find a box of Playboys in the woods or something like that. It is a nefarious thing that is growing and expanding. AI is becoming a part of it. Augmented reality is becoming a part of it. And it's only going to keep going. But it's when you understand the scaffolding underneath this horribly dark and demonic you know, industry is where you can really look at it in terms of the revulsion that it should cause. And again, we go into all that in this interview. I really, really do enjoy this interview. It, again, it was heavy. It was rough. There was one point where I was like literally fighting back tears because I was just getting so unbelievably mad. You guys will know exactly what I'm talking about. And to be honest with you, just full transparency, I have no idea how to transition effectively into the sponsor of today's show. So I'm just going to do it. So We love KC Cattle Company here on this podcast. Again, not the greatest transition ever, but it just is what it is. Guys, there are a lot of meat delivery subscription services out there. I've tried some of them. I've been somewhat impressed and some were just not very impressive at all. But the thing that I love the most about KC Cattle Company is that they are the only one of these services that is U.S. military veteran owned, U.S. military veteran operated, and all of their beef, chicken, and pork products are produced here in the United States, not somewhere else and shipped in. And that is KC Cattle Company. Guys, they specialize in Wagyu beef. Guys, you know, I've talked to you about Wagyu beef before. That's a particular breed of cattle that is known for its mutations. That gives you 
way more marbling, all the good stuff that you want. Guys, I've got some roasts in the freezer that I need to get to. They've got a bunch of different things like bratwurst. I basically make those with every meal now. They sell everything from Wagyu steaks to Wagyu roast, pasture-raised chicken, pasture-raised Berkshire pork, Wagyu bacon cheeseburger bratwurst, a bunch of other items, and their world-famous gourmet hot dogs, which is basically like a tube steak. You guys got to go and try their products, so go to kccattlecompany.com. That's kccattlecompany.com. Use the promo code Kyle to get 15% off of your order. Again, the promo code is just my first name, Kyle. That's K-Y-L-E for 15% off of your first order at KC Cattle Company. We really, really do appreciate them sponsoring the show to get their products out to you guys. So guys, again, like I said, buckle up. It's a heavy one today, but put on your big boy pants. We got to get into it. So without further ado, let's get into it. Benjamin Nolo, welcome to Undaunted Life of Man's podcast. Thank you. It's great to be on. I mean, I've known you for all of five minutes, so can I call you Benji yet, or, or should we just stick with the official Benjamin? Maybe in like another five, ten minutes. Okay. Well, then we can just <laughs> pretend. We can just pretend that I didn't say that, Benjamin. I will, I'll keep it as preferred. What's your middle name? I could use your entire name if, we, if you want to go that route. <laughs> but the middle name is a little too French as well. Okay, yeah, I already told you off air. Guys, when you look at his name, it's not Nalot. It's not Nulu or anything like that. It's Nolo, okay? So I was glad I asked off air. But we do need to make sure, because obviously I, I just did the introduction. People have a little bit of a sense of who you are, but I always like them to hear it from the horse's mouth. So as a way of introduction, you are a first-generation American. So my understanding is that your family immigrated from France. So I guess the first thing is I need to break some news to you, is that did no one tell your parents that we are the most racist awful country, like in the history of the planet that we hate foreigners and that they need to just stay where they were because we're Americans and whatever. But, you know, you can address that if you want to. But I guess what was it like growing up in America, even though your, your parents didn't grow up here? Uh, yeah, no, um, my my dad, once he got here, you know, he he never had a desire to go back. Mm-hmm. And uh, and so it's it's a great country. Um I am so privileged to have grown up in the United States. I've traveled the world. There's nowhere I would rather live than exactly where I live right now, which is in Southern California, um, mainly due to the weather, um, mm-hmm. but also because, you know, just the freedoms that we enjoy in this country. And so, um, yeah. I will let you know that land is cheaper outside of South uh, Southern California, and we have way less taxation across the country. So how about you pop around the country, you know, check us out in Oklahoma, go to Texas, kind of see if anything else fits your fancy. It gets a little hotter, you know, the, the more central you get to the United States, but just certainly keep that in mind. But obviously, or go ahead. Believe me, I've looked around and, you know, I don't love the politics in California. I don't love the cost of living here. It's mainly to do with the weather and the surf. And those okay. are things that it's just really hard to find other places. Um, and I've, I've lived in Hawaii for a season. We had the surf, but I just, the extreme heat. Hmm. Uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's not for me. I lived in um, the Midwest. So I grew up here in Southern California, but I lived in the Midwest for 16 years. And I, so I feel like I paid my dues uh, living in Kansas City with terrible weather. And at this stage of life, you know, 15 years into this anti-trafficking work, uh, I felt like I needed just a little bit higher quality of life to get outside, decompress a bit. So it's been it's been a great fit. 
Hey, but they've got the best barbecue on the planet. So every different community has their claim to fame. Y'all got the weather. They got the ribs. But, you know, you've mentioned already, you know, also being in Southern California and doing what you do for a living, making films is is in making television. Like, that's obviously a great place to do that. But I'm curious, like, what what drew you to that? Because from the outside looking in, we've had people that have worked in, in that, you know, documentarian space and all that on the show before. It seems really sexy from the outside because the finished product is so cool and they can stream it. And, you know, it seems like this this big attractive thing but i'm just wondering for you what drew you to that line of work yeah there's a couple of things uh that i really love and appreciate about the do- about documentary as a genre um first documentaries have really shaped the way that i see the world so i feel like a lot of the world is a lot of the way we see the world is informed through cover narratives that are specifically constructed to create an impression of something based on a polarized, you know, political ideological position. And so there's this question that I often have, which is, you know, what is influencing us? Hmm. And are we, are we living under the influence of what a certain political party is saying under what certain news outlets are saying, what social media is saying, what pornography is saying, what alcohol might be telling us. There's a lot of influences in our world. What I love about documentary is that it, it documentaries take you below the level of consciousness where we live our normal lives and expose us to deeper truths that have the capacity to create a transformational paradigm shifting experience in us and cause us to live more deeply connected to truth. So the way I see the world is is not so much an issue of good versus evil as it is truth versus deception. And so I love the documentary genre for the very reason that it pursues the deeper truth as a way to um, connect with the real world. It, It fundamentally alters our way of being in the world. So that's First, the second thing is that I really grew up um, deeply immersed in the arts. And so there's a creative aspect to filmmaking as far as this multi-dimensional canvas that is very satisfying to work in as an artist. Um, and then there's and then there's the, the kind of the justice chip that I have, which um, has, you know, the issue of human trafficking is really what compelled me into a a more deeper investigative journalistic kind of dive into this whole world. So documentary combines both the element of um, investigative journalism with the creative aspects of filmmaking, puts those two things together, and then you get to be a part of bringing truth into the world that helps free people into, um, into, yeah, just powerful mindsets that are connected to reality. And, um, so I think those are kind of three of the main reasons why I've been really drawn to documentary as a genre and, and, and committed to, you know, helping to make these or committed to making these films to help make the world a better place. Well, so something that you mentioned there is you mentioned truth and obviously documentaries should be bringing forth truth, even though there's a lot of narrative with documentaries. Um, But 
in this era, uh, and I said this on another interview at some point, like I get so frustrated with modern films. Like I, I think the, the, the Marvel films and like all those superhero films, I think they're just brain dead. It's the same storyline rinse and repeated with different characters and different CGI and different things like that. I'm just like, I'm, I'm drawn to the gritty kind of those, those really dark and heavy projects. So I've kind of been pulled towards documentaries and specifically with your work, which I'm so glad I, I came across it. Your film projects and and even some of your episodic docu-series type things, they cover really heavy subjects, okay? So we're talking human trafficking, uh, pop culture's effect on how people view sex and gender and violence and, you know, the porn industry and how it affects children and, you know, the the realistic things behind the the porn industry, which we're going to get a lot into here in a second. And I find myself, as I'm watching your work, and as I'm watching work from the other people that I get around is I'm like, man, I'm putting so much darkness into my brain. And at Undaunt to Life, we're here to equip men to push back darkness. So to a degree, I feel like I have to do that in order to, you know, point men towards that. But man, wouldn't it just be easier to make a documentary about puppies or like snow cones or like something easier? Like, I guess, why do you go into these really, really rough subjects? Oh, believe me, I've said those exact words numerous times. At some point, I'm going to make a documentary about puppies. Yeah, right. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, it's it's traumatizing. You know, there's a vicarious trauma that's invoked by virtue of coming up against this behemoth system of injustice, um, of human trafficking, commercial sexual exploitation, all of that. And um, and and there's there's a definitely a challenge to that. I love something that John Eldridge said. He said, you know, every man needs a battle to fight, an adventure to live, and a beauty to win. And, um, and I think that we as men are most alive when we're engaged in the battle that we were meant to fight. And so for me, you know, my canon, so to speak, in this fight against human trafficking really has been these documentaries. And so, um, so while the subject matter is very disturbing, um, I find a lot of purpose and a lot of value um, in being able to create these documentaries and, and to present them to the world. So there's something also in uh, the Old Testament book of Daniel. It says that God sees what is in darkness, but light dwells with him. So he's more keenly aware of the darkness of every injustice in the world than we could ever fathom, than we could ever be. And yet he's the father of lights in whom there is no variation nor shadow of turning. He's full of virtue and purity and light altogether. So I don't think that a journey into this has to necessarily overwhelm overwhelm one with darkness to the point of being paralyzed. I think there's a way to navigate this space um, and to see what is in darkness, but to also be able to uh, hold on to hope and and uh, and be able to hold on to truth as you're as you're going through this. So um, so yeah, so we're navigating a really difficult dark space, but there's such a powerful redemptive value in it. Um, that I heard something somebody said once. I think it was I can't remember who said this, but it was this quote that there are two things that pierce the human heart, tragedy and beauty. And, uh, and so with our films, we really try to capture both of those things in a palpable way. And I think that's the one thing that would characterize our documentaries is that you don't walk away not having felt something, not changed. 
Um, and yeah, we're going to introduce you to the to the reality of the of the tragedy of human trafficking and sexual exploitation, all of that, in a very palpable, heartbreaking way. But we're also going to create, you know, we're also going to highlight the aspects of of hope and redemption that. Um, yeah, that leave people feeling like I can really do something about this and we can change our world. Well, and the thing about it, well, and here we are 10 minutes in, can I call you Benji yet? Just, just as a sidebar. <laughs> I think we're, we're fast friends. And let's that. go. Well, Benji, here's my follow-up question to that. So covering your eyes and covering your ears and pretending like evil and darkness doesn't exist, doesn't make it go away. And one of my favorite scriptures is Ephesians five 11. I'm reading from NASB. Do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even expose them. Okay. And so that's the thing. It's, you're not participating in the darkness. You're shining a light on it. You're pointing at it. And that's one of the ridiculous things you, you mentioned, the the politics of California. A lot of people that have a kind of a more leftist point of view, they get real offended Whenever you point at what they're doing and say, yeah, you shouldn't do that. That's wrong. That's immoral. Like you, you shouldn't cut, you know, the healthy breast tissue off of a 14 year old girl. You shouldn't marry that person. Like any of those things. It's like, oh, it's, they're just aghast at some of this, these things like, oh, you shouldn't judge sex workers. They're just doing what they need to do. Like that type of an idea. It's just very pompous and an arrogant thing. And you also mentioned John Eldridge there. He's been on the show more than anybody else. Uh, we love John Eldridge. He's a mentor of mine. And he wrote a book called Resilient. And in that book, that's a, one of his his recent books, he's talking about we're all coming down off of this high from uh, the, the pandemic and people's rates of porn use have gone through the roof. People's rates of all these other destructive things that they would do to themselves have gone absolutely through the roof. And everyone's waiting for the reset button, which may not come. And it's our ability to basically hit the reset button in our lives that that makes it meaningful. That is going to allow for that change that a lot of these people need to get into. So I'm going to spend a lot of time today, Benji, talking about the the new project that you're literally right in the middle. Guys, whenever you hear this episode, we're right in the middle of this release. It's a new project called Beyond Fantasy. And so it's a, it's a three-part, uh, three-episode series, I believe. I don't know if it's going to go beyond that. I guess you can tell us. But it's basically looking at the actual word of the world of pornography. So it's giving you a peek behind the curtain of what is actually happening. And, and we'll get into the different episodes and, and we'll break some stuff down. And obviously, guys, it's in the show notes. So you guys can go and check that out for yourself. But why why do this? You know, what what is the, what is the overall goal of the Beyond Fantasy docuseries? Well, when we were making our first documentary uh, called Nefarious Merchant of Souls, mm-hmm. uh, that is a that documentary is a global snapshot of sex trafficking, and I traveled to 19 countries, 42 cities on four continents, filming that. And as we were investigating the issue of sex trafficking and child trafficking and all of that, uh, I began to see these five overlapping areas where pornography was intersecting with sex trafficking, and um, and so it was really the experience of seeing the way that pornography was overlapping with sex trafficking that drove me towards wanting to investigate that deeper. And so in 2012, I whiteboarded a session with our staff at Exodus Cry, and we talked about going on that journey to really uncover what's happening in the realm of pornography. And um, 10 years later, we're now at the point of releasing um, both the documentary miniseries that we created, Beyond Fantasy, that you mentioned, as well as a, a book that I've spent the past 10 years working on called Raised on Porn. Um, and so 
Yeah, so it's been a deep dive for literally a decade to to go into this and to uncover what's really going on. Um, I think that it will give people a very different perspective and understanding of pornography. So lots to say about that, but that in an introductory way, that's sort of how we got involved in that. Yeah, there certainly is a lot to say about that. And before we dig even further into the project, you brought something up there that most guys don't think about. And if they did think about about this, it would co- probably give them a little pause, but the link between pornography and sex trafficking. Now, we've had guys on this podcast that have written entire books about it. Uh, Dr. John Fobert is one guy that has been on the show a couple of times about how porn rewires the brain, but also there's not a crooked line between pornography and sexual exploitation and human trafficking. It is a straight line. It is a bold line, not a checker line. It is bold and it is one-to-one. And most guys don't think about it that way. Part of it, I think, if I were to venture a guess, Benji, is is that they don't know that. They're just ignorant about it. But then mm-hmm. the people that do know that, they just try not to think about it because, yeah. hey, hey, they're horny, they're bored, they, they, they just want to look at porn and jerk off. Why, why is that so pervasive? And like even that one, I guess the ignorance to it, but even the people that do know about it, they just don't give a crap. Yeah. Well, let me first just say that, you know, I – I, even as we talk about this subject, there's, I think there's so much shame around the, the issue of pornography and sexuality uh, for men, especially growing up in this culture. Not only is, is pornography something that we grow up with as sort of the, the wallpaper of our lives in this pornographic culture, um, but there's not really a healthy dialogue going on around it. And so I think a lot of men feel very isolated within their struggle mm-hmm. and alone and full of shame. And I think there's a cry in a lot of men's hearts of, can I ever be whole? And um, so I think even as we approach this, I just want to take the shame out of this conversation and just to normalize the idea that we all struggle with our sexuality throw on top of that, you know, the fact that we are the first generation to grow up into a planet that's been hardwired with this highly potent, visceral, visual medium um, called graphic hardcore pornography. So it's a struggle. And, um, And so I think for me, it's really important to distinguish between the idea of, you know, uh, how do I say this? So shame is this idea that, that I am bad. Um, conviction is the idea that I have done bad. And there's a huge difference between the two. And so I really, at the outset of a conversation like this, want to just take shame out of the equation because I think it's partly what keeps men in the cycle of pornography consumption. In other words, the behavior triggers the shame and then the shame triggers the behavior. So there's this ping pong relationship that men have with shame. And then we start off in a conversation like this, immediately men begin to feel the shame of that. So instead, I think it's helpful just to say, hey, look, it's we struggle. That's normal. Let's step away from that for a moment and try to come up with an objective analysis of what is this thing of pornography. Um, I think that the work that I've invested in these past 10 years is extremely valuable towards helping people who maybe have been trapped in that cycle of pornography consumption be able to come out of it. And um, again, that's something that we can 
dive into deeper, but I just wanted to say that at the outset of this conversation, because I'm just very aware when we're inviting men to a conversation and it immediately goes into sexuality and porn, there's, there's just a lot of guys out there that are struggling. And I just want to say, Hey, it's okay. Like, you know, it's that the struggle is part of what it means to be human. And it's not the end of your story. Well, and I think guys are pretty used to, to the heavy stuff by this point, you know, we're several hundred episodes in. So, but, but I appreciate that word and here's where I don't necessarily know that I would couch this as pushback, but I agree with you. There is, there is a problem with no dialogue here where men feel like they're the only one that struggles in this way. They're the only one going down this path, even though they, they really do intellectually know better. But I do think it spans all the way out to where the dialogue that is had is incredibly weak. Uh, I remember I went to this, this was years ago. So I used to struggle with pornography has not really been a part of my life for well over a decade at all. And yeah. so uh, there was this group that I went to in my early twenties when I was trying to get a handle on this. And there's all these guys that were older than me and they sat in this circle and they basically just went around the circle. And this guy's like, oh, I made it two days without looking at porn. And then all the guys are like, Hey man, it's okay. Try to make it three days next time. This one guy who was a pharmacist who would meet up with random strangers and have sex with them, like in parking lots, he got a venereal disease and gave it to his wife, but instead of just telling her, like he gave her the pills she needed to get, to get over this venereal disease, he like snuck it into her food. Right. So oh, like wow. some crazy levels of depravity, but it was wow. like, there was so much weakness around me and, and, and I'm okay with weakness. Cause we all get weak, but I was like, is anyone going to say, just stop doing this? Yeah. Like for, cause for me now, this is very personality driven. So, and I want to give you a chance to, to kind of push back if you, if you wish to my personality and guys that are wired like me, Shame is a tremendous motivator. When I was a kid, I was overweight. I will never be overweight again because I remember the shame of taking off my shirt at, at the pool because I'm already a ginger. So I'm like half like translucent skin. So that's one problem. But then being overweight adds another issue. Same thing with me. When I think about looking at porn, when I'm bored by myself and all those different things, I remember the shame I felt when I had to tell my wife or when she found it, when we were dating or any of those things. So for me, shame is a tremendous motivator as long as it is attached to the understanding that we are fully de depraved human beings that have no pathway to the father except through his grace. And we can't white knuckle our way into morality or into, into heaven or those types of things. But does that kind of make sense that like, again, I don't want it to seem like pushback, but there's, there's kind of a spectrum here, even though I hate using that word. Yeah. I think it has to do with healthy versus unhealthy shame. Okay. So, Healthy shame is, man, I did bad. I did, I acted out of, outside of my core values. And I feel the sting of that. In faith, Christian terms, we define that as the sting of sin. Right. Like I, I felt the sting of that. That's healthy shame. You should feel that sting. Mm -hmm. um, unhealthy shame is, you know, I have done bad, therefore I am bad. Right. That's that's Satan whispering in your ear, being the father of lies, getting you to categorize yourself that way. That makes perfect sense. Yeah. And so just I think that a lot of guys are just stuck in that under that voice of condemnation. There's something that they used to say when I was in sales a long, long time ago for a short season. Um, they say when people say no, it's not that they mean no, it's that they don't have enough information. Sure. And so I feel that a lot of guys are stuck in that place of maybe maybe they've consciously decided I don't really want pornography to be a part of my life. They just don't have enough information that's compelling for them to fully overcome it. So 
some of the feedback that I've gotten from men that I've walked with is I wanted to be free. I tried everything. I could not get free until mm. this work that we've done together. Okay. And so I have a lot of confidence in kind of the, the work that we've done to address pornography and how powerful that can be for men who maybe are struggling and want to be free and haven't been able to find that freedom yet. And again, it might be a very small percentage of your audience, but I think it's worth mentioning just because I, yeah, I'm just, I'm just aware of that in a, in a very keen way. So absolutely. I appreciate you giving us a little bit more on that. So, so let's get back to beyond fantasy. And before we get into the exact episodes, um, you made a, I don't know if this could be couched as a stylistic decision or a cinematography decision. Uh, you, you blurred out, pretty much all the sex acts. There's no, there's no nudity in this. So for anyone that's looking for gratuitous nudity, it's not there, but you, you, this is about as raw and graphic of a documentary as I've ever seen on the subject before that didn't actually show penetration, right? Sorry if anybody was offended by that word or like didn't show titties or like whatever the thing is, right? Things that you would expect because there are documentaries about the porn industry that are (laughs) <laughs> they're utilizing the porn industry to keep you interested in the documentary, but you, you blur out the minimum amount. And there were other places in the film where you use like almost cartoon renderings of some of the things that were going on. I guess why do that as a stylistic choice? Why not try to sanitize it more? Could you not get the point across by being, you know, not even, you know, hinting that you were going to show some of those images? Yeah. Uh, so, so as we began to kind of uncover what was happening in the porn industry, there were three primary areas that we felt like really stood out to us as areas that we wanted to focus on, that we wanted to address. So first was this genre of pornography called barely legal porn, which is the pornography that depicts, you know, 18, 19 year old girls as though they're prepubescent teens. So there's that genre that is the most Teen porn is the most searched genre in all of pornography. Um, and the pornography that's created around that is really to promote the idea of sex with a child. And so that became a major focus for us. The other um, genre that we addressed was this genre of violent pornography. Um, and again, that's one of the most popular genres of all time, what would be classified as gonzo or hardcore, or rape porn, or revenge porn. And, um, and, it, and that is meant to to show women being broken down on, on camera and violently perpetrated against. And um, that also was something that we were concerned about the promotion of those fantasies in a world that is already struggling with so much sexual violence. And so, and then the third thing was the epidemic of STIs um, that was happening in the porn industry and STDs in the porn industry. Um, so those are kind of the three focuses of these, um, of this mini series of these documentaries that we did as we were putting the stories together. Um, it was first of all, important for us just to be able to communicate, you know, in a coherent way, what's happening in each of these three areas. And then in terms of establishing a visual scape for the films, um, we spent a lot of time trying, cause there's no reenactments in mm-hmm. the film. Everything is taken from actual archival assets and then combined with the interview footage and behind the scenes footage, uh, verite footage. So we spent a lot of time trying to find that the right kind of um, balance of, you know, not sugarcoating things, allowing people to kind of see for themselves 
the reality of, of what was going on in porn, but without crossing that line into the realm of nudity and penetrative sex acts. And, and, um, and so, I mean, I, I look at our editors as heroes because they've spent countless hours sorting through right. all those archival assets for us to try to create something that's palatable for a wide audience to come and, and really find out what's happening in porn. The feedback that we've gotten from people is that this is the hardest hitting film that they've ever seen. That's basically the universal feedback we've gotten in all the focus groups that we've done is people have told us this is the hardest hitting film that I've ever seen. So we don't pull punches, but we do try to, you know, guard people from having to confront, you know, the, the real graphic sexual, um, stuff. And, um, but yeah, so that's, that's how we approach that. Well, I'm, I'm appreciative of what y'all have done because, uh, probably not gonna be a shock to you at this point. I don't really like pulling punches either. I like coming right at it and like, Hey, let's just deal with it. Like if we have to wait till the dust settles to see what we're looking at, that's fine. But you know, that, that was one of those questions is like, okay, you're not going to be able to use your film as a masturbatory aid. So that's how you can know that this doesn't go over into that, that area. But I want to dig into episode one, which is barely legal, which, which you set up, which is where, yes, they, as they report, take 18, 19 year old girls that look significantly younger. And they are with, you know, a uh, very, uh, much older adult and female sex actors. And they, they kind of go out, they go into it that way. The thing about this that was the most disturbing, and don't worry, we'll get to Max Max Hardcore here in a second, is the depictions of what's happening in these films. It reminds me of a concept I learned from Dr. John Fobert, which is sexual scripting. So when a child, seven, eight, nine, ten years old, looks at pornography for the first time, it's typically not the pornography that I saw when I was a kid. It's not a playboy. It's not, you know tasteful if there is such a thing. It is hardcore from the very, very beginning. Anal sex, uh, you know, rape sex, you know, where the bodily fluids are, are everywhere. It's it's just these, these horrific images if you know what real sex actually is within the covenant of marriage. But these kids are getting that as their sexual script, right? And so that leads to them wanting to do some of those things. And we'll get that, we'll get more into that here in a second when we talk about episode two. But the most nefarious thing that I think you expose, Benji, is that we are scripting pedophilia. And, and I said this years ago and people thought I was crazy. I was like, guys, the next, the next battlefront in the sexual revolution in the LGBTQ wars or whatever is going to be the normalization of pedophilia. We already don't call them pedophiles anymore. We call them minor attracted persons. So we're sanitizing what we're seeing. But when you're looking at porn like that, the highest, you know, most searched porn category there is, you're teaching these adult males to look at girls that look like little girls as sexual objects. And it goes way beyond objectification of women. It goes to the scripting and teaching of pedophilia. Do, do you feel the same way? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think for us, you know, when we got into this, I don't, we didn't fully understand the deviancy of, what barely legal porn was, which if if, I, if you can hold your thought real quick, sorry, sorry to interrupt you. I, I just have to get in here. Th that's the, the one warning I would give to the audience, aside from the fact that you have to watch these, like it's almost a requirement. It is in the show notes is it's so sticky and it's because of what you just said. Deviance, the mm -hmm. level of depravity is so potent. It's like, it's in the air. It's like, it's surrounding you as you're watching this. And that's not an excuse to get away from it. It's just an excuse to dive in, but I'm sorry, go ahead. I just had to say that. Yeah, no, for sure. And I think it hit home for me in a, 
really profound way because of some of the experiences that I had making a documentary on sex trafficking and particularly with an emphasis on child sex trafficking. So I had gone to this place called Swipok on the outskirts of Phnom Penh, which is has been considered to be the, the capital of global child sex trafficking. And, um, and after returning from that trip, I reached out to our host there and said, hey, we're putting together this awareness center, sort of like a museum on modern day sex trafficking. Are there any art- artifacts that you can send us from the film that would help us tell the story of what's going on? And he got back to me a couple weeks later and he said, yeah, we, we just did this raid and, um, and he said, we recovered the pajamas of a seven-year-old child that were still stained with the blood from her abuse on the crotch. And so they needed to uh, recover those pajamas as evidence in their case. But when they were done with that, they sent a, he sent them to me in the mail. And I remember coming back from work one day, was, this was weeks later, I'd sort of forgotten about this conversation. And... Um, not forgotten about it, but I wasn't, it wasn't on my radar. My, I get home, my wife is like, Hey, there was a package that came in the mail. And, um, she goes, I'm not sure what it is, like some dirty pajamas or something. And I remember just taking those pajamas out. I mean, they're tiniest pajamas of a seven-year-old and, and, and seeing this stain on the crotch, this blood stain on the crotch and realizing what those were. And I was just so impacted in that moment by the reality of the the injustice that is suffered by children in our world and the knowledge that this is the fullest extrapolation of somebody whose life has been completely hijacked by pornography these men that are flying out to cambodia and you know thailand and brazil and other parts of the world to go on sex tourism trips and to seek out children it's it's not that they got up one day and decided to go do that. This right. is this is the evolution of um, a exposure to pornography that began as children, and so for me, I was able to make that connection in such a clear way. Porn consumption with the abuse of a seven year old child, and this these these children in Cambodia are also groomed for the sex industry by being shown pornography. So the traffickers use them to groom them. So it's, it's connected in all kinds of ways, but this is one very direct way. And so, you know, as I went into the porn industry, I'm carrying that knowledge and to see the cavalier way that pornographers were creating that fantasy in their films now, their justification would be, yeah, well, the girl's at 18. They're still promoting the fantasy of sex with a child. Exactly. So the stakes were, were really high for me in terms of understanding the, the impact of that on our world. And, um, and so, yeah, I mean, I just, you know, confronting that was really, really disturbing. It was a, it was a revolting experience and it was an enraging experience. And I thought I had this actual like very conscious thought at the time that I know there are a lot of men out there who are trapped in the cycle of pornography consumption. There are men who said to me going into the porn industry, I don't know how you could do that. I'd be so tempted, yada, yada. 
the experience of doing it was so utterly revolting that I thought if we can craft these documentaries in a way to recreate that feeling in the audience, mm -hmm. then we will have succeeded. And that is what we set out to do with Beyond Fantasy is give them the vicarious experience of having that revolting stomach turning type of experience around pornography as they begin to learn the deeper truth of the deviancy and the reality of what's really going on in the porn industry. Well, Benji, as you were describing that, and I'm sure I'm not alone in this, but maybe it's a little bit different because I'm the one in the conversation hearing you describe the seven-year-old girl and all those things therein, like anger to the point of tears, like being so mad that you could spit nails. Like I'm like just sitting here, like clenching my fist because, you know, if you have any justice mindset inside of you, if you have any, you know, any hatred towards bullies or towards people that overpower those weaker than them, like it should create that visceral response in you that brings anger. And we'll get a lot more into that here in just a second. But revulsion, I, I think is exactly the case. Cause when you talk to anyone, I've read books and, you know, gone through documentaries of what really is going on in the porn industry. It's not sexy because people always like to point to the most famous ones that never regret doing it, that are multimillionaires and, and they're cultural celebrities and, and these types of folks as being the examples of, you see, porn's not bad, but then you're not talking about the 99% of people that were just chewed up and spit out by the pornography industry. I had a gal on the podcast uh, earlier this year named Jessica Midkiff. She was sexually trafficked for over 10 years and now she's working to get girls out of that livelihood and she just said straight up on the show, like some of the girls that she worked with, I guess you could call them her colleagues. They don't exist anymore because they were chewed up and spit out by their pimps. They were literally murdered once they could no longer be profited off of because they were so destroyed sexually or physically or mentally to where they couldn't perform in the way that the pimp pursue or, you know, the, the sex exploiter wanted to do in those, those types of situations. And a lot of the market for uh for these sex workers as they're called or for these people that are are in that industry where they're paying for sex is because of what you cover in episode 2 of Beyond Fantasy and that's hardcore pornography. And so this episode the first two episodes I I can't give a, a medal to which one's more sticky because they're equally, you know, awful in my brain in in a good way because I'm I'm glad to be reminded of it. But this is kind of going back to what I talked about with the first episode to where it's teaching a sexual script again these hardcore, violent acts and portraying the woman as wanting it, wanting it harder, wanting to be defiled, wanting to be deflowered, wanting to be debased as a human. And they're being taught that by violent pornography. And then they take that into their normal life, but then they, they can't do that with their wife because their wife would never be down with some of that sexual violence. So then they move to prostitution because they're like, well, I paid this woman 50 bucks. I'm going to do whatever I want. So I'm going to try the stuff that I've been watching for all these years. So talk to me a little bit about episode two, kind of going into the whole hardcore side of things. Sure. Absolutely. And before we jump into that, I want to just mention uh, something that you point out, something that you said that I thought was important. And that's this idea that there you know, are, are a lot of people out there who justify and rationalize their porn use by pointing to that person right. who they say, oh, well, this person is, you know, sexually liberated and empowered and making money off of this and wants this and all of that. And I would just challenge that notion. I think that, again, is part of the cover narrative. It's the idea that there's this subclass of human beings, women, who exist for 
no other purpose than to be sexually subjugated and dominated by a male. Mm-hmm. And that pornography does a good job of promoting that cover narrative, this very two-dimensional um, picture of women in porn. And so for me, going into the porn industry and talking to some of these people was a revelation. Because if you only took them at face value based on what they were putting on their Twitter profile or how you see them appearing in these movies, there's there's the allure, there's the the come hither look, there's the, mm-hmm. you know, uh, I, the idea that like, I want this and I'm this sexual being and this is really the entirety of who I am. And that lie is, is what seduces a lot of men into, again, rationalizing and justifying their, their porn consumption. One of the things that John Eldridge told me when I, when we were talking about this idea of, you know, how do we, like, what do men need? How do we heal the relationship between men and women? And what, what are some things that we as men can do? And he made this very surprising statement to me that um, I just hadn't really thought about in this way, but he said, men need to forgive women. And, and, you know, part of me was like, man, like, men need to forgive women. <laughs> like, I'm like, there's things like a lot of bad things done to women on the part of men. And, but he, he kind of like helped me see deeper into this idea of, you know, men's experience with women growing up in the world. And for men, for people who are wired to want to feel powerful in their world this is the one area the relationship with women where we are often destabilized we all have had the experience of of being rejected by a woman or being lured and not you know having the opportunity to have that connection or or being betrayed or or whatever it is and so i think that what men find in sometimes in pornography is this counterfeit form of feeling desired of feeling powerful right uh, being in a world where no you know no woman says no every advance is is met with more you know voracious you know sexualized uh, uh ravenous behavior and um and so part of the work that i feel that those part of the work that i feel like men who are struggling with porn need to do is disrupting the fantasy of what porn is. And it could be, you know, boredom that triggers the, the desire to escape into that fantasy, or it could be anxiety, it could be rejection, or it could be stress at work. Something's triggering men to want to escape into this fantasy world. So part of the work that men have to do is to disrupt that fantasy with the deeper truth. So to use the point that you mentioned, there was this girl who was a one of the few contract stars in pornography, by all intents and purposes, one of the most successful porn stars in the world. She was a, a contract uh, porn performer for Digital Playground. And we sat down for the interview. And before I even asked a question, the first thing she said to me is, I've never said this to anybody before. And I don't know why I'm going to tell you now, but I want to tell you how I got into this. Hmm. And her manager is in a back room waiting for her. Okay. So I'm aware of the risk that she's taking to even open up at this level. And she begins to unpack the story of the way in which she was trafficked into pornography. And so 
a lot of people. So here's the thing is that what, what, what you don't know when you get into this is you actually don't know that person's story. But what I can promise you is having interviewed so many of these people, they all have a story. They're all three-dimensional people with histories, histories and preferences and unique experiences and, and life crises and tragedies. And they're whole people. And, uh, and the second thing that people don't know on the front end of this is where, where that's going to take you when you push that button, when you click on that image, when you get onto that website, you do not know the ride that you're going to be taken on. We talked with men who ended up in prison for consuming child pornography, who started out as with really vanilla, you know, sexual appetites, heterosexual appetites. So this person was taken on a ride into something they never thought they would get into. And all, you know, to, to elicit, right, the, the, the feeling of arousal that started to wear off with just the vanilla thing and it went down this path. So if there's one area where we just don't want to be taken for a ride is in the realm of our sexuality. So we don't know who that person is, what their story is. We know what they're saying on Twitter. We know how they're being shown in the movie. We don't actually know right. who that person is. And then we don't know the ride that we're going to be taken on. Maybe, maybe your vanilla sexual appetite never changes. Maybe you become a pedophile. Is that a risk you want to take with your sexuality? I'm like, so it's, you know, Beyond Fantasy is a cautionary tale of what can happen um, and what is happening related to who these people are in porn and, and where that might take you in your own um, appetites. So- yeah, absolutely. I love I love that you got into that. And so this is going to seem a little crude for some people and maybe it's because I'm I'm a 12-year-old boy at heart. But when I know guys that have been struggling with porn and they're like, "How do I stop looking at porn?" I'm like, "Well, stop looking at porn." It's like it's the Jocko Willink approach to pull-ups. If you want to be able to do more pull-ups, you need to do more pull-ups. But if guys need to go a little further, I will tell them, "You need to look for opportunities to make your boner run away." Mm-hmm. And what I mean by that is so some guys I'm like, "Okay, their, their trigger is when they're home alone, when their wife and kids are not there, that's when they're triggered to look at porn because they're bored and horny. Okay. Text me and tell me, Hey, like before the family leaves, Hey Kyle, like you could even have a code word, like, Hey Kyle, uh, I'm planning on watching basketball tonight, but I'll be by myself. Uh, do you want to come over? That's, that's my trigger. I did actually have that conversation with a buddy just so nobody could, you know, look at the text messages and think there was anything nefarious going on, but there's nothing that makes your boner run away sooner than when you think I'm going to have to follow up with this guy tomorrow and tell him whether or not I looked at porn and masturbated. And another thing is, is Nothing should be able to make your boner run away faster than if you're thinking of that person as being a trafficked individual, a person that does not want to be there, someone that was tricked into being there, somebody, and you go over this in your films, somebody that was brought on set to contractually do this, this, and this, and then the moment they show up, it's a whole myriad of other issues, and then they're threatened, hey, if you don't do this, you're not only not going to get paid, we're never going to hire you as a contractor again to be in any of our films. And so it's basically like enforced slave labor, which, you know, we've spent about 45 minutes talking about all this. Now we need to get to the thing that makes me just about more angry than anything else, and that is a person named Max Hardcore. 
So Max Hardcore is basically the godfather of hardcore pornography. I can't remember when he started. I don't really care. But he would basically convince these women at, at you know restaurants or bars or whatever to come with him to his, his trailer or his RV or something like that and to do these incredibly incredibly hardcore sex scenes, pay them basically nothing. And then he would also had the gall to like, pretend like he was a coach and different things like, Hey, let's give it our all. And let's kind of come over. And the thing that I was overwhelmed with Benji is as I'm watching, especially cause he was featured in the first episode uh, about, you know, the underage stuff. And then in the hardcore episode, he was featured prominently is I was like, he needs to die. I'm like, how is Max Hardcore alive today? Like, I was finding myself, just as you were describing the seven-year-old girl in, in her blood-stained and semen-stained panties, I was I was the same way about Max Hardcore. I was like, he needs to die. Someone needs to take this guy out. And I was overwhelmed with this idea of like, Benji, how were you able to control yourself during these interviews? Because these are people that need to be torn to pieces with people's bare hands. And yet here you are calmly, and politely just sitting across from them, asking them questions as if they're the CEO of a bank. I think, yeah, I, the, the, the level of, of outrage is uh, very appropriate for the situation that, that we found ourselves in and that you're, that you're reflecting on. Um, I think for us, it was really important to allow these people to be who they were on camera. And that I think for us was was the the goal of um, trying to get them to not just give us their you know their pat answers or uh, their own cover narrative of how they like to talk about this, but really getting into um, who they really are and and being that person on camera. And so for Max Hardcore. I noticed that when I started to ask him questions about what do you like to see happen in the context of a scene, that it was almost like, I mean, his eyes like actually started to change. He started to come alive right. in describing what he wanted to see happen. And so this is a man who has gone way over the edge and who I would describe as a sociopath. And I told him that. I said, you sound like a sociopath. And his response to me was, well, I don't know what a sociopath is, but I'm a hardcore pornographer and I didn't get this way over, overnight. I've been doing this for 25 years. So this is a man whose own conscience has been so seared in his journey of making pornography. And, um, but when he begins to come alive and describing what he wants to see happen on a set and begin to illustrate that it allows for an audience to see straight into the belly of the beast. And, and to me, that is part of the purpose of a documentary like this is, is for others to decide for themselves what they think about this. You know, I could have just done a, you know, video sermon telling people, Hey, this is what I think about pornography and you all should think the same way. I don't think it would have the same effect or be as powerful as people actually seeing into the belly of the beast, having to wrestle with that. And well, now what do I do with this? You know, there's no, you know, when you, when you sit with a person like Max Hardcore, as the viewers do vicariously through this documentary, I just don't know that there's a way to walk away and in good conscience think, well, you know, 
I'll, I'm going to, you know, still continue to, to consume pornography. I think it creates a huge moral conflict for people out there who maybe are already struggling with like, should I, shouldn't I, you see what's really going on. And it's, yeah, I think it's, um, pretty convincing in that way. Yeah. I think the, the greatest compliment I could pay to Max Hardcore is that he is a literal piece of human debris. I've literally been sitting here for the last 20 minutes wondering if I'm going to break the cussing barrier on my show by calling him what I want to call him, but we'll go ahead and leave that for now. But you mentioned something and I wrote this down. It was one of the first things I wrote down when I was preparing uh, this podcast and you said it right there. So it's appropriate. Seared consciousness. Because you're you're interviewing a bunch of people that are in the pornography industry, everyone from from actors uh, to producers, directors, the whole thing, and especially the producers and directors. There was a lot of whistling past the graveyard. There was a lot of, and I, you asked such great questions to these people, and you, I'm sure you were just deadpan. You just asked them, and you're sitting there with your notepad, just waiting on them to answer. And you would basically ask them like, hey, do you think that this is maybe going to encourage guys to uh, seek out sexual relationships with young girls? And you could see that they would stop for a second. And then it was almost like they would reset and be like, nah, you know, if if that's what someone else does, that's what they do. I do what I do. I make porn. This is how I make a living. It is what it is. There was so much of that through all three episodes of this, of just the seared consciousness that couldn't have been there when they were six or seven, unless they are a sociopath and literally can't feel emotions. But there was so much of it. I guess, why is that so pervasive? Does it kind of go to maybe the next thing I wanted to talk about, which is, the root of all evil being money. The almighty dollar is what drives this entire industry. Yes, power and domination and sexual exploitation is a part of that. But the reason why these people are doing it is because they get paid a lot of money, especially the producers and directors and some of the actors and actresses. But talk a little bit more about that seared consciousness concept because it is absolutely flummoxing that that people can can operate in that way. Yeah, especially when it comes to the issue of children. I mean, it oh my is gosh, just- yeah so disturbing and so yeah a lot of our interviews were very confrontational from the standpoint of really confronting the moral and ethical conflict of promoting sex with a child and I wasn't it sure. It shouldn't be a conflict. That's not a conflicting thing that we should have to war with in our brains. Like oh, the fact that they are even considering it is astonishing conflicting from the standpoint that clearly this is something that should be out of bounds. Sure. We have an interest as a society. The idea of society is that we're better off together than we are alone. And in the interest of the construction of society, the most obvious thing I think to to all of us is, is the need to protect children. And so, so the conflict from an obvious societal moral imperative to protect children, but then you're over here promoting the fantasy of sex with children. So that's the conflict and, and just realizing that they really had no answer for that. And um, so how do I reconcile that? I think that what I've observed happen is that since the advent of the internet, uh, there was such an infusion of images, sexually based images into our culture that the main and the plain and the vanilla weren't enough anymore to elicit the same kind of feelings of arousal that somebody had when maybe they first saw those things. 
And so there was a, a need, if you will, to keep pushing the boundary further and further and further. Well, the the gatekeepers, the the you know those benefiting from pornography, the pornographers themselves began to push the boundaries further and further to try and elicit and capture more attention, more viewers, more clicks to their website, and just kept pushing further and further and further and further down that road. And so the sad phenomenon that we live in today is the reality that there's a handful of these individuals, you know, mostly living in the San Fernando Valley who are setting the sexual template for a whole generation. Because while maybe they started off being aroused by some vanilla sex image and now can't get off unless they're choking somebody or presenting an image of a child being, you know, some, some, something like that. Well, for an eight-year-old who's, you know, now somebody who's now turning eight years old gets onto the internet and discovers that as their first sexual encounter. What does that do to that? What we, what we know about neurocoupling and just the, the way that we experience images um, online is nothing short of digital rape. It is uh, of that child is digital sexual abuse. The, the exposing of children to those images is so um, detrimental to their own healthy sexual development. And, and to me, that's part of the huge tragedy of this is that they will start what took these pornographers 25 years to get to. Exactly. So the, these handful of pornographers are setting the sexual template for a generation of people based on a totally abusive, exploitative, sociopathic sexuality that is predicated on either the abuse of children or the abuse of women. And, and, uh, and that's, that's part of the alarm that I think that beyond fantasy sounds is, you know, the alarm of what, what, what are we doing? What are we doing to our children? What, what is happening in the world? What are we doing to, uh, you know, even the, just the people that are being featured in these videos? It's, it's awful. Well, and you've, you've seen the, the wisdom of, you know, we always stand on the shoulders of giants. We stand on the, the wisdom of the past because think about the, the, the idea that popped in my head is think about the language development that William Shakespeare had to go through, right? Well, now we just use a lot of his sentence structure and words and all these different things. It's, it's literally old hat, even though a guy several hundred years ago was literally having to like figure out how he was going to communicate ideas in a particular narrative structure. And here we are, we're just building off of that. And I agree with you again, with where I started with, you know, little images that, you know, a grainy image, you know, whenever you're on channel two, whenever back in the cable box days, and you're like, Oh, I think I saw a nipple like those days to where we are now and where parents are just handing unlocked smartphones, like to their children to be able to look at literally any violent sexual image on the planet with, with a click. And some of those images and videos don't, don't, they don't seek them out. They seek the kid out, right? Like the kid just literally stumbles upon it because of two clicks. And now all of a sudden he's on a hardcore porn site. And the thing that was overwhelming for me, Benji, is that I guess my throw my hands up and not know what the hell to do moment was I was just like, man, these people need Jesus so bad. And, you know, I'm, I'm aware of some ministries that would, would minister to uh, pornographers and minister to that industry. And some of those people are still around today. A lot of them are not, maybe they couldn't handle the heat or the, the level of darkness and depravity. Some of those people got pulled into that world. Like how many people do you know are exposing, uh, you know, uh, sex rings in, 
in a particular community and then they get caught with a prostitute. It's like, okay. But it's just like, I don't even have a question, Benji. I need you to almost like cut me off here because I was just like, man, these people need the gospel. How can we get it to them? How could a guy like Max Hardcore be saved? Like, cause he can be, cause the, the blood of Christ covers everything you could possibly imagine. But there is some sick satisfaction that I get in that guy burning in hell forever. So please save me from my own rant. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that, you know, when we, when we think about faith and the community of faith and how our faith um, com- compels us in our way of being in the world, uh, we have lost that pillar of the ministry of rebuke. And in Isaiah chapter one, God acknowledges their prayer meetings their hyper-religious activity, all these things. But he says, but they're in a, their worship services. He says, they're an abhorrence to me because your heart is disconnected from the plight of the vulnerable. So he calls them to repentance, but it is, it's not, the repentance isn't, oh, holy God, oh, sinful me. It's he actually instructs them what that looks like. He says, repent, and then he goes, here's how. Seek justice. In seeking justice, number one, rebuke the oppressor. So much of the injustice that we see see perpetuated in our planet today is a result of the lack of someone willing to rebuke an oppressor. We see it all the time, the way in which... These situations are covered up, even in faith circles, right? So, so we have to reconcile with our own culture that we've created in the church as well. Um, things that we've seen covered up in the Southern Baptist, you know, convention in the Catholic Church, sure. situations where somebody was guilty of something, others knew about it, and instead of exposing it, rebuking it, they covered it up. So. In James, he says, you know, a pure and undefiled religion is a, its ministry and orphans ministry to orphans and widows in their trouble. So it's this idea of like, okay, well, what is this really all about? What is this really all about? This thing of our faith and our way of being in the world. He goes, really, at the end of the day, it's about the fact that there are a demographic of people out there in this predatory planet who are uniquely vulnerable to being preyed upon. And your authentic faith, an authentic expression of faith is having compassion for those ones who are in trouble and intervening in those situations. Mm-hmm. Uh, one gives us, first and foremost, through a rebuke. So the, the last story I'll mention on this is the story of the Good Samaritan. The person, again, the same, same situation. The person comes to Jesus and says, you know, what is this really all about? How do they get saved? He goes, love God, love people. Yeah, that's it. Uh, well, what does that look like? okay, there's a person who's been beaten, stripped naked and left for dead. And the two people, those religious leaders passed by on the other side of the road. These were the people with the right title, with the right doctrine and the right group and the right theology, right? They were the ones who were about, got patted on the back, right? They had the big, the, the, the mega church ministry, all, all they had, all the stuff. They had the right worship team. They passed by on the other side of the road. And Jesus used them the example in this story of the one whose faith is barren 
by a lack of a virtue of their response to vulnerability. Then a Samaritan comes along, who's the equivalent to, you know, a Mormon in, in our context. This is the, the Samaritan is the one who's in the wrong group with the wrong title and the wrong doctrine and the wrong everything, but who goes to that one that was beaten, stripped naked and left for dead in compassion and ministers to him. And Jesus uses that person as the person who's the hero of the story. Now, a lot of us go, well, oh, the person stripped naked. I don't want to defile myself. Like, beloved, <laughs> like we just have to consider the reality of what is going on on a much greater scale. Proverbs 2 says that God guards the paths of justice. And the way he does that is through partnership with human beings in real time and space. So there are, a, there are demographics of people who are vulnerable in our society that are being prayed against, being prayed upon. For me, stepping into the porn industry and seeing the way in which performers were routinely coerced exploited, taken advantage of financially, sexually, in every way. And then how the fantasies, the deviant fantasies that were create, being created were being promoted to the world, oftentimes to children. There's no barrier around children having access to these images at all. Compelled me to create a documentary that would be a rebuke to the porn the the porn industry and to the porn industry gatekeepers regardless of what that would cost me so you know we've gone into this very sober-minded about what is going to be the co- the ultimate cost of us doing this but that is what beyond fantasy is it is a rebuke of the porn industry that has had no self-regulation no accountability is the largest multi-billion dollar industry to be completely unregulated and justifies rationalizes and 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 uh, validates everything that they're doing under the guise of sexuality. So, well, this is completely racist. Well, oh, it's it's there are people having sex, so we get a pass. Like, so what other area of society we would would we allow such violence against women and children and racism and you know all of this stuff? except in the realm of porn because of the, the past that they get because it's, it's, it's sexual. And in this extremely woke culture that we're living in, you know, we know that this is the sacred cow that you just can't touch is the issue of sexuality. It's, it's the idea that we should be able to do whatever we want, whenever we want, with whoever we want, and promote whatever we want. And if you say something, how dare you? You are immoral. I mean, it is the literal definition of, call, you know, it, it says that in the last days they will call um, evil good right. and good evil. It's the literal fullest extrapolation of that reality that we see happening, happening now on a, on a global scale in every society of the world. Since we live in this globalized, technologized, interconnected, hardwired planet where pornography is pumping um uh, sewage into the minds of an entire generation. Absolutely. And I think that we have to, it is incumbent upon us to push back against that darkness and to rebuke it. And I think you've, you've nailed it. 
with Beyond Fantasy. I think it is a rebuke. So if, if that was the be all end all goal, I feel like you've done so. So we've gone a lot, uh, gone a lot of places and went over a lot of stuff in this conversation. So as a, as a means of wrapping up, is it just going to be the three episodes? Because I think by the guys, by the time this is released, the second of the three parts will be out and ready to go. The first part is definitely out, but the, the all three episodes will definitely be out within you know a month or so of each other. So is it just going to be those three episodes? Will there be more? Is there you know maybe a feature feature length film that's going to be a part of this or are there other docu-series that you're working on now kind of give us a sense of what the near future holds so beyond fantasy is the real tip of the arrow docu-series addressing the key issues facing the porn industry and uh and so again you know we we created these as a means of accountability and and to hold up a mirror to the porn industry and also as a way to hopefully jolt people out of that cycle of pornography consumption when they see the reality of what it is. So in this fall, uh, we're also doing the premiere of a feature length documentary called Buying Her, which uh, is a documentary about male sex buyers. And that film also shows how childhood uh, exposure to pornography was a key factor in the snowball effect of them reaching these very disturbed places in in their life, Um, not only going out and buying women, but a lot more that went along with that. That documentary is is also very intense documentary, but also aspirational for men who who may be struggling with some pretty dark stuff. So that one's coming out later this fall. And then next year we have another docu-series coming out called Entering Pornland, which is the individual stories of people who essentially went into porn, got chewed up and spit out. And um, so it's more personal in that sense of just tracking an individual story. So, yeah. So and then uh, my book, Raised on Porn, is also coming out here in the next number of weeks. And so we've got a lot of resources coming out on this. And uh, and we hope that it will be really helpful for people in, in reshaping their understanding and ideas of, of what pornography is and its impact on the world. Well, as you continue to crank stuff out in this area, we will make sure to have you back on so you can talk about it with our audience. But that's all for me. Is there anything else you want to get off your chest? Yeah, just thank you so much for the opportunity just to share about what we're doing. I really appreciate it. You got it. Benjamin Nolo, thank you for coming on Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. Thank you so much. There you go, guys. I hope you enjoyed my interview with Benjamin Nolo. But before we let you go, we are going to do a quick resilience boost. At Undaunted Life, our mission is equipping men to push back darkness with content that forges spiritual, mental, and physical resilience. So I've got a link to everything that I know of that he's made. So the docu-series Beyond Fantasy, also a documentary called Raised on Porn, a documentary called Nefarious, and a documentary called Liberated, The New Sexual Revolution. Thank you guys so much for listening to the show. We do appreciate it. Wherever you're listening to this, please subscribe, rate, and leave us a positive five-star review. If you want me to come speak live at your event or on your podcast, just shoot me an email to info at undaunted.life. That's I-N-F-O at undaunted.life. Follow us on Instagram and like us on Facebook and check out our website for everything else, including how to donate to keep more content like this coming your way. Just go to www.undaunted.life. And as always, we want to thank the band August Burns Red for allowing us to use their music for our content. The music on this podcast is our song Cutting the Ties, which is off their 10th anniversary re-record of their album Leveler. The links are in the description. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Remember, keep pushing back darkness, keep forging spiritual, mental, and physical resilience, keep seeking the Lion of Judah.